This podcast is made possible by the good people at Boopa. Boopa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Boopa, jump online and check them out. Hey, Dewey, what what's your favourite food memory? Uh, it would definitely have something to do with my mum. Uh, she's Malaysian and she's an amazing cook. And I remember, you know, when I was little, every Ramadan, end of Ramadan, she would cook her beef rendang, which mm. was, if anybody doesn't know, it's this delicious curry Yum. with toasted coconut and blended lemongrass and slow-cooked beef. And the whole thing just cooks down into this kind of oily, slightly dry, delicious, um, delicious <laughs> dish. And my older brother and I would make it a sort of test between us who could eat the most because she used a lot of dry chili in hers and it was super spicy. But, you know, beyond that competition between the two of us, it was also the smell of coconut toasting that she toast off in the wok. And it's the wok that I use mm. today. You know, mm. it's a wok that's 40 years old. Um, and that would just fill the house. And people knew that when they came over for what we call Hari Raya, it's called Eid in a lot of the other parts of the Muslim world, um, that you would get rendang. And mm. it's the best. And I love cooking it today as well. What about you? Well, I grew up in a big Italian family. So, for me, my favourite memory would have to be end of summer, those long, hot days, tomato seasons coming to an end, and my entire DeMeo family, including my uh, grandparents on the Welsh side of my family, probably 25 people across four generations, would all convene down at the farm. We'd all get together and we'd spend the entire day making the passata. We'd be squishing the tomatoes mm. into bottles, shoving it with basil and garlic, putting on the caps, and we're talking hundreds of bottles, squishing them down, and then you boil them in huge drums with uh, wood fire underneath. And uh, at the end of the day, after a huge day of working, preparing the tomato passata for the rest of the year, the entire year for the entire family, four generations would all get around... Uh, one big long table and my nonna usually would make the biggest pot of pasta you have ever seen in your life and we just all laugh and enjoy the evening long into the evening and um, okay. share stories and um, I suppose just catch up and, and and share love. That's so nice. That Posada ritual is something I've always been extremely jealous of. You know, <laughs> it's always seen these incredible photos of families together and just getting messy and yeah. it feels like the true sense of ritual yeah it is and and i think that's what food brings it's it's identity it's culture it's love it's family it's connection it, it's something that you know everyone puts down what they're doing everyone makes time for a moment uh everyone would come together you know even if it was only once a year everyone would be there because um it's posada day Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat and the way we live. We'll look at food and how we can eat for better physical, mental and social health and the way our decisions at home can affect lives on the other side of the world. In this series, we're going to be talking to leading researchers, health specialists and everyday good humans. And we might even throw in a recipe or two. Mm. I'm Dr. Sandro. And I'm Dewey Cook. But Posada Day doesn't just end there for you, does it, Sandro? It, it's taken you on a completely different journey. So as I grew up, food continued to be a really central part of my life. And then I became a doctor and I was working in the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and also at a few 
um, in a few communities across Australia, including some remote communities. And, and what I saw was that while food was such an empowering, giving opportunity for me in my life, many people across Australia and indeed around the world in countries where I worked in Cambodia, Mongolia, even Sri Lanka, working in, in aid camps after the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, what I saw was that food was powering a global epidemic of disease, that mm. food, in fact, had gone from something that over more than a century had helped us, you know, civilizations across the planet enjoy longer, healthier lives. Mm. Suddenly, this same very thing, this, this central part of our culture, every culture across the planet in many different ways had become the leading risk factor for disease worldwide. So... That took me on a quest. I left Australia, left uh, a job that I loved as a doctor. I left and went overseas and spent a number of years working for the United Nations, including as a nutrition advisor for the World Health Organization. Uh, and, and that was really an amazing experience, realizing that once again, that, that magical ingredient that had been so powerful to my development, emotional, physical, in, in early in my life, food, could in fact be such a powerful and democratizing opportunity to raise billions of people out of poverty, to give people across the planet a better life, and ultimately maybe even safeguard our planet for future generations. Wow, those ideas are so huge that sometimes I just feel a bit overwhelmed. I don't really know how anything that I can do can change any of those things that you just talked about. And I think that's that's such an important thing to acknowledge because some of the challenges facing the world today whether it's global hunger or climate change, feels so overwhelming. And we feel powerless as individuals, but we also, we want to do something. We want to feel as though we're making a step. And while we can't change federal policies alone, while we can't change, you know, a global path that we're on on our on our own, we can change what's on our plate. And, and I think that for me is such an empowering and important part of, you know, food, why I love food, because... It is a major driver, a major determinant of so many huge challenges facing our planet. But at the end of the day, it comes back to what is on our plate and what we afford the plates of the most vulnerable in our society. Right. Let's get into it. Let's start small, really small. This episode looks deep within us to our gut, to the millions, trillions of little microbes that live there and that research is starting to show have much more power than we'd ever imagined. The gut is running the show, if you yeah, ask me. I mean... Uh, it's amazing. That's Joanna Simpkin, a neuroscientist and curator from the Melbourne Museum. She recently put together a huge exhibition exploring that deepest, darkest part of our bodies and we're going to hear more from her later about how microbes might actually be the real puppeteers. But first, are you biome curious? Only on the weekends? The huge spike in interest in gut health from researchers, consumers, the media and corporate interests over recent years means there's a bunch of science and terms floating around that many of us might not fully understand. Okay, they're terms that I don't fully understand. But luckily, I found someone who does. My name is Dr. Ray Boyapati. I'm a, a gastroenterologist. I work at Monash Health and also at uh, Monash University. Ray describes the gut as everything in the long tube that goes between your mouth and, yeah, your bum. This includes your esophagus, your stomach, small intestine and large intestine, and it is metres long, like 
several metres long, like around nine metres long. And inside all of that is what's called your microbiome. So you might not realise this, but actually more than half of the cells in your body are actually non-human or in and around your body, which is quite a remarkable concept, right? So they're bacteria and other microorganisms, and most of those actually reside in your gut. There's what we estimate to be um, about 10 or 100 trillion of these uh, microorganisms in the gut. And so what we say is that that's, if you can imagine the number of people in the world, um, 10,000 times that, and that's the number of bacteria in each one of us. Remarkable. Uh, so that's the microbiome, which is, or the microbiota, which is basically the collection of these cells and these organisms that live together in a community. And we know that that affects so much of what uh, health is now. And that's kind of been emerging in the last sort of 10 years as a concept. So if you've been paying any attention to health news in the media, you've probably heard about the microbiome or using probiotics to restore good gut health. But the wild thing is that science doesn't even know what a healthy microbiome looks like yet. It's really hard to define a healthy microbiome. And the reason I think it's hard to define is there's a lot of healthy people who have a varying types of microbiome or microbiota. And so there's no real signature or blueprint that we can you know, aim for, so to speak. Because of that, that's made it really hard to know what to, what to do and how to alter this microbiome. Uh, what we can say, though, is that there are some sort of overall themes that we can say is associated with health. One of those things is, or themes is uh, diversity. So um, a diversity in the type of microbiota, um, the type of microorganisms in your gut, that is associated with health. We know that. It's also associated really importantly, I think, with stability. And what that means is that it's robust. So if you've got a diverse group of microorganisms and bacteria in the gut, then it's less likely to be shifted by insults that we all encounter, things like antibiotics or, or environmental factors. There are some organisms that are associated with health, but the problem is by just identifying one or two organisms, people think, oh, that's what we have to take in a supplement. Actually, uh, I think it's much more associated with the diversity uh, of microorganisms uh, in your gut. Ray's been a gastroenterologist for 10 years. He's seen a lot of change in what we know about the gut and in people's interest in what he does. But even as a specialist who's dedicated his career to understanding the gut, it still surprises him to learn how central it is to so many other diseases. And we're not just talking about disorders like inflammatory bowel disease. We're talking about heart disease. We're talking about stress and depression. We're talking about type 2 diabetes. I mean, that's quite remarkable, I think, in and of itself. And although we don't have strong uh, and convincing links between with, with the gut and all of those, I think we're getting emerging evidence there. Um, but overall, it's just the expansive nature of how gut health is going to be central to, uh, to overall health. Now, back to Joanna. In 2019, she launched the Melbourne Museum's Gut Feelings exhibition, which featured, among other things, a glowing nine-metre-long gastrointestinal tract that visitors could walk through and it made the gut seem kind of beautiful. Here she is with Sandro. Dr Joanna Simkin, can I call you Joe? Yeah, please. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am Senior Curator 
of Human Biology and Medicine at Melbourne Museum, Museums Victoria. Uh, and there my job is to put together exhibitions all to do with human biology and medicine um, and also look after the state heritage collection, the medical side of things. That sounds like such a cool job. So you have a quarter of a million students coming through every year, young minds yep. that you get to enthrall in the mold. body and medicine yes. and, yep. and and things like the gut. Yep. How amazing. Well, talking of the gut, I mean, there's been an explosion of interest in all things gut the last couple of years. Why are we so obsessed with what's going on down in our innards? Yeah, it has been amazing, actually. I've noticed the difference coming from a research background before Museum World um, and actually researching in the gut, the gut mm. nervous system development. And no one loved the gut quite as much back then when I did my PhD. Because that's your so, background. You're, you're a proper yeah. scientist. You've been uh, yep. you've been got working the on this. For, yeah, yep. you've got the PhD. And <laughs> but anyway, why people are so interested in the gut now, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon and it's this really interesting collision of media interest combined with this new scientific understanding. So from the scientific side of things, um, it's really the effect of sequencing technology really taking off in the last... So it's gene sequencing. Yeah, that's right. Um, So the last uh, five years, it's really amped up Mm. with things, um, sequencing procedures just being cheaper and faster and easier to use. So that's allowed this huge swathe of new research to come through, particularly in the microbiome of the gut, Mm. which a lot of people are talking about. Yeah, the soup. Yeah, soupy soup mix. Of, of microbiome. Well, the amazing thing is uh, to think that one to two kilograms of you is microbes. So, so one one to two kilograms of yep. all of us is made yep. up of the soup of organisms yeah. living in our guts. Yeah. Wow. How many are and, there? Uh, about 38 trillion. I do Holy know off the moly. top of my head. How many, uh, compared, compared, how many zeros is that? To, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, compared to about 37 trillion human cells. Wow, yeah. so there are more... So there are more microbes. We are more microbes than micro- human. Wow. Yeah, and hopefully okay. we, we can get into it, but there's some really interesting theories about, you know, us kind of being puppeteered by our millions of Ooh, microbes okay. in the way that they influence our personality and behaviours and all sorts of things. Love it. Yeah. But if we take a step back, what, what does gene sequencing have oh. to do with our gut or a group of friends that are hanging out in our bowel? Yeah. These guys are really, really tiny, Mm -hmm. so they're quite hard to analyse. And so this new sequencing technology just allows us to really pinpoint um, in very small sample sizes now, smaller than ever before, um, exactly which microbes are present in which percentages and that sort of thing. Um, And so that's been really important because, you know, for ages we've thought pretty confidently, yeah, we we kind of understand how the human body works, like... You've got your nervous system, your gut's there doing things. Mm. We even knew that um, our body contained microbes and, um, you know, we sort of thought, yeah, they can withstand having some microbes on and, and in them. Some of them are even kind of good for us. But this new burst of research has really shown how these microbes beyond that are actually having a really huge influence on how our bodies function, on what we're thinking and our behaviours, because they're able to talk directly to our nervous system, including the brain, but also immune system and hormone system. Wow, so we have 37 trillion trillion little friends speaking directly to our brains and we didn't know until a few years ago. So this this kind of blows my mind because I went through med school maybe 15 Mm. years ago. I didn't Mm. learn anything about the microbiome. I don't think we we even talked about the microbiome. And the only thing we really talked about with microbes was how we can kill the ones that live on our hands. You know, we're all obsessed with cleaning and, and 
rightly so, infection's a big issue. But yeah. where did this – I mean, there's just been such a rapid interest in in the area of the microbiome. Has it come from scientists like yourself? Or yeah. I kind of feel like the public have just That's woken right. up one morning and been like, this is – This is really interesting. So this is the first example I can think of where um, because of this social media age that we're in, there's been this amazing scientific breakthrough. The media's caught wind of it. The general public have been like, hey, that's really interesting. I can see Mm. how that affects my everyday life. The food industry and advertising industry have also jumped on board and then all of a sudden you've got this storm of people just like guts, 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 guts Mm. Uh, and it's really taken off. So you said, you mentioned before that there are 37 trillion of these little guys running around in our guts and they have an influence on our brain. Mm -hmm. What what do you mean by that? That sounds very kind of... You know, X files. What, what does that mean? Because one's down here and one's up here. Yeah. Gut and brain. Um, and we, th- and we, we go... think about our gut as something that like digests our food. What? Yeah, exactly. So that's the. <laughs> that, I mean, that is a very important role it has as well. Um, but also being home to these microbes. So, guts one hundred and one. You eat the food. The microbes lining your gut also eat that food, mm. and they kind of break it down. And the metabolites that they make when they're breaking that down um, includes things like short-chain fatty acids. Mm. And these are the magical little particles that can then signal to your nervous, immune and hormone systems. Mm. So these little short-chain fatty acids are absorbed into the gut lining um, and they're able to interact directly with, you know, immune nervous cells. Um, So to talk to the brain... They're able to stimulate this very long winding nerve called the vagus nerve that's kind of wrapped around your gut. Mm. Uh, so it sends a message up and the, the vagus nerve kind of plugs into the base of your brain. Mm. So in that way, all of a sudden you've got this direct communication line from your gut um, connecting right to your brain. Your brain controls a lot of what you do. So suddenly mm. it becomes a bit more understandable how these little guys could influence your behavior and thinking. Um, The amazing thing is, is thinking how specific some of the signaling can be. So there's some really great research out there showing that it could be as precise as a certain microbe in your gut sends a certain signal up the vagus nerve to a certain region of the brain and might encourage, so in a deep brain structure like the hippocampus responsible for learning and memory, Mm. um, it might encourage you know, extra receptor production or something in that area to make Holy it more moly. more sensitive and more active. Um, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, a specific microbe that's encouraging memory and not even that a specific type of memory. So it might be, um, you know, spatial memory versus, you know, memorising a list of things. So what you're saying is that the, the, the bugs living in our gut, not only can they have an influence on our immune system, on our nervous system, so how we're kind of feeling and, and the hormones that are rushing around our body and the, you know, the constellation of nerves and how they interact with the different parts of our body, but there can actually be a direct connection between our gut and then a part of our brain that is responsible for our memory. And there could even right. be an individual bug down there that's like the memory bug that's somehow influencing... Yeah our ability to have a certain type of memory. Yeah, so that's what the scientists wow. are trying to pick apart now and that's why this really fine-scaled analysis is so important. 
So when I was at med school, again, we, we kind of drew the body as the brain is like the, the mothership and then everything kind of yeah. radiates out. And, of course, mm-hmm. if you ask a cardiologist, the heart's the centre, and if mm-hmm. you ask a kidney specialist, the kidney's the centre. Yep. But, I mean, have we actually got this completely wrong? Is our, is our gut in charge yeah. of our bodies and, and are even we in charge of our bodies? Because if we've got bugs that are, you know, certain micro microbes that are responsible for such specific processes or thoughts or emotions mm-hmm. – I mean, how much of our body is it? The gut is running the show, if you ask me. I mean, Uh, it's amazing. And to think of um, the nervous system is really complex and, you know, interlaced and amazing. And it's got all these immune cells there as well. It's kind of the highest concentration of immune cells anywhere in your body as well. And so, yeah, so much of what you're feeling, that's why we ended up naming this exhibition at Melbourne Museum Gut Feelings. Yeah, and, um, and by the way, you should go and check out the museum exhibition. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but it can really affect you emotionally as well, and that's kind of why the whole mental health side mm. of the medical world is so interested. Um, we mentioned that vagus nerve talking to the hippocampus responsible mm. for memory, but also the HPA axis um, responsible for kind of emotional responses and the stress response as well are really heavily linked there. And that's more about hormones, isn't it? It's about the interrelationship with hormones and the nervous system. Yeah. Well, you'll find that most of these, you know, all the body systems are interlinked. Stress is a really interesting one. Um, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. Because when when you're stressed, Mm. so when you're stressed, you can definitely, I can certainly feel it in my gut. But then, and you know, we all talk about uh, gut feelings or go with your mm-hmm. gut. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we've been talking about our feelings being connected to our yep. gut for a long time, but we often think that our brain dictates our gut. But actually what you're saying is that it's just as much, if not maybe even more, flowing the other direction. It is flowing more the other direction. Mm. Uh, I think it's something like 80% of the signals are going from your gut up to your brain. And um, not just the hungry ones. <laughs> not just the hungry ones, although they are going up there as well. Um, but no, it's, uh, so we've known for a while about that connection, as you say, I mean, you can feel it, you know, when you're nervous or anxious about something, you can feel your gut is doing weird things as well. Mm. But now we're just sort of understanding at the microbial level, what's going on as well. You know, we often think about the importance of eating well or our mental health. You know, we have a very kind of superficial approach to maybe taking care of our gut, but thinking about it more as a kind of diverse and vulnerable group of microbes that actually give so much to us in terms of nutrition, but also increasingly we understanding mental health, all of these different parts of our health that they contribute to. It's mm. yeah, it's fascinating. It's giving me and it's giving me a new appreciation for when I'm hangry. Yeah. Well you hit on a good word there as well, diversity. So a diverse microbiome is so important. You want mm. lots of different microbes in there. It kind of um gives them an added strength, you know, in case something goes wrong, there's more likely that a population can stay in there and stay strong and also means that they can kind of help each other out and give each other positive signals to keep going and keep doing good things. So diverse microbiome is really good. I mean, you've, you've worked in this field for a while now. What would you say is kind of, I mean, this is pretty mind blowing area of science. What has, what blew your mind? Uh, I think getting down to how specific some of the signaling can be, Mm. it's just incredible. And, you know, the reason it's so exciting for the medical world is because something that's so hard and quite abstract to reach, the mind, we can reach just by eating something. Mm. I mean, that's incredible. So the idea that your diet could be so powerful, Mm. um, it's 
it's it's already really interesting to see that trickle through into society um, as people are becoming more aware of it. But also how incredibly complicated and fascinating and also still unknown our body is. Mm. I mean, when you think about that we've just realised in the last decade or that it's only still becoming clear that the way we eat and how that interacts with all of these microbes living in our gut that make up two kilograms of our body weight then have an interaction with almost every part of our body, including our brains, our mood, our, you know, the way we feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, as, as a scientist, as a doctor, mm-hmm. it's just, it's so humbling because again, you realise we have so much to learn, but also yeah. the body is so fascinating. Yeah. This is why just about every researcher is now going, oh, I wonder if microbes have something to do with that thing that I'm yeah. researching. And nine times out of 10, it seems to. And this research is so much bigger. I think it's important to realise as well, this, this research is so much bigger than also kind of the wellness space in rich countries like Australia. I mean, there is some fascinating mm-hmm. research emerging around the importance of the microbes microbiome in kids who are stunted so permanently impaired across their life because of starvation in the most impoverished communities across the planet the world food program the food and agricultural organization the united nations i know that there are great researchers in those organizations now realizing that in fact the microbiome and the gut is critical to some of the most you know important and major challenges around child malnutrition child hunger and mm. poverty worldwide i mean this area of research has huge implications also for the world's poorest mm-hmm. yeah i think that's so important i mean you can see that even here there's a really dangerous idea out there that to eat well it's really expensive mm. it's not and in fact there's some amazing research out there that purposely chose a very affordable diet so we're mm. talking you know tins of beans mm. you know some fresh veg Tin tomatoes, Mediterranean diet is still really mm. up there and all recommendations. So that's, mm. yeah, that's good. Um, but it can be really affordable. So, you know, you don't have to go out and buy organic everything. In fact, one of the take home messages we have from the exhibition is really if you're trying to stick to a whole food diet, you can't go too far wrong. Mm. So that's trying to stick away from things that are in packaging and are processed and full of preservatives and that kind of stuff. You want to just eat things that are kind of as they are, Mm. um, you know, fresh fruit and veg and all that jazz. Don't worry about diet trends like carbs are not the enemy. They're good. Like your microbes love them as well. So chuck in some fermented foods every now and again if you want, but don't get too hung up on like taking your probiotic tablets every day. Mm. And Um, and I think that's also the amazing thing. It's again, so humbling and liberating because you think this huge complicated new area of science and actually the answer is really simple. It's not simple to achieve for a lot of people, but it is a simply communicated message Mm -hmm. and it's eat the things that we know we Mm -hmm. should be eating more of and and we need to make sure that more people can access those things and and get more of those onto the plates of as many people as possible and it would be great for our gut as well. Yeah. The new thing is not the messaging. As you say, we've known for ages to eat well. The new thing is really understanding what that messaging is, what's going on. And I think it is important for people who are listening to understand that while we're starting to find some really interesting discoveries, you know, this is not yet the panacea. And mm-hmm. I think anyone who promises that it is, that it's going to cure everything, doesn't know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, what, I mean, what do you think people need to be wary of? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where are we maybe overstretching the promise of this area? Yeah. You know, where does, this, where does the science yeah. end? It's quite difficult to draw the line because there is all this sort of 
beautiful opportunity out there that mm. these really powerful things do have this opportunity to have a really powerful effect on your life and how you're feeling. You know, feeling better day to day is a great thing for everyone. Mm. Um, but we're at the stage we don't even know if there is an ideal microbiome for a human, if it's going to be different for everyone. So if there's a specific microbe mix that's different for me and you because, you know, we've got different genes, we've had different life experiences, different stressful events, things like that. So we might have different microbial needs at different stages of our lives. In fact, we certainly do. We know the microbiome changes as you age. Mm. So we're really at the stage of, you know, we've kind of worked out a few strains of microbes that seem to be generally good for people. They're the ones you're going to be finding in your probiotic mixes that you see advertised. But, I mean, there are just so many species out there, um, you know, they've all got to be investigated one by one. Mm. They're all having these huge networked effects throughout your body. And we spoke about how detailed some of that molecular signaling can be. That is many years of research mm. ahead. So we're at its tip of the iceberg kind of stage. Yeah. First of all, if you're promised the earth by someone, you know, in this mm. space, be, be wary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a really good message for anyone, though, is that once again, we're realising if you can find affordable, easy, accessible ways to improve your diet, mm-hmm. to get more fruit and veg into your diet, more whole grains, nuts, seeds, healthy oils, all mm-hmm. of those things are probably going to really improve your mm. gut, your microbiome diversity, yep. the healthiness yep. of your microbiome yep. environment, and have all sorts of other added benefits that we kind of knew yeah we're associated with a healthy diet for a long time, but we're probably now starting to understand why and and maybe then be a bit more wary of other promises like, you know, everything being solved by a tablet mm-hmm. or yep. by a poo transplant, which yep. at the moment is still, I yep. think, really in the domain of like specialist medicine yep. and we need to kind of keep yep. it there. And the interesting news stories, they're certainly um, headlines that grab you. But yeah, as you say, I mean, having a healthier diet is going to have a way better impact than you having a not so great diet and sculling a kombucha every now and then. Mm. Yeah. So... Um, you know, microbes were the first thing on this planet. Mm. They'll probably be the last as well. Um, we've evolved from them. You know, they were able to create the first multicellular organism and that evolved into that and that and that and that. And then we became A long us. way down the line, yeah. And the, all, all the way down that line, we've been covered in microbes. Mm. So when you start to think like that, it just makes perfect sense that we're going to function at our best when we're covered in this soupy mix, as mm. you say, of microbes primordial ooze or Mm. I don't know how you want to visualize it yeah well thank you very much (laughs) for joining me today I have to say the the saying trust your gut I'm increasingly Mm. worried about how much I can trust my gut or how much maybe I should be trusting it more but uh, it's certainly added a lot of weight to that concept (laughs) and it's been fascinating to chat great thank you okay so like Joe said uh, there's no point in like sculling a kombucha Mm. um, if you aren't looking after your body in other ways. Um, but I've got a confession. <laughs> I would never scull a kombucha. <laughs> I think it's not pretty, a fan of the booch. <laughs> not, not a fan of the booch. And I just don't get it. Like, yeah, right. how, where are you, Sandro, on the kombucha yeah. spectrum? Do you like it? Do you? Look, I mean, I, I prefer, to be honest, I prefer to just drink water if I'm going to drink something kind of fresh and, and cold. Uh, so, no, I'm not a big fan of the booch either, but I um, – it is certainly a lot sh- lower in sugar than a lot of other options. So sometimes, you know, I've been known to have a bit of the booch. Uh, but it's it's funny because I was thinking about it on the way in here and almost every culture around the world has a fermented product, mm-hmm. like a fermented food 
as a staple and almost a kind of quintessential staple of that of that culture. And certainly, um, you know, you think of like kimchi, uh, soy sauce, um, miso. miso, Vegemite, mm-hmm. um, but also Italian culture. So I, I grew up, you know, with dad making a lot of preserves. He's like the preserves guru. So uh, we had a whole bunch of vegetable sort of things that ultimately are fermented. Even, even chili, like your kind of... Um, not sriracha, but like the fermented chili sauces that everyone's obsessed with at the moment, and I'm I'm making mm-hmm. brewing away in my fridge at the moment as well. We actually eat so many fermented foods that we don't often realise. So it's it's for me, it's more than the booch. It's actually all these incredible parts of cultures across the world where fermented foods are a, such a staple. If you're feeling fruity and you want to take a leap into the world of ferments, there's plenty out there to catch your interest. So one sunny Saturday, I took a trip over to the farmer's market at Abbotsford Convent in Melbourne and had a chat with Matt from Gorgeous George Probiotics for a little primer on live culture. What is kefir? Kefir. All right. So I'm going to explain kefir by explaining kombucha. This is the simple spiel I give to people across the table. So kombucha is a layer of scoby, so it's yeast. People call it a mushroom scoby, it's not fungi at all. So it's a layer of yeast. You put that in with black tea and water, feed it raw sugar. It eats all of that raw sugar. So if you do it properly like us, there should only be traces of raw sugar. And then you add the ingredients afterwards to to flavour it. We double ferment everything, we do it twice. Kefir is a grain that does the same thing. You don't need the yeast, you don't need the black tea. So it's not as potent a taste as kombucha. And it's a soft grain that you put in water, feed raw sugar. Again, it eats all that raw sugar. So there'll only be traces of raw sugar. We're talking about 0.07%. And then you flavour it from there. So the flavours will have natural sugars, but no other sugars, just traces of. And traces of alcohol from the fermenting process. Again, 0.07%. People often come up and say... I've got gut health issues, which one's going to fix me? And the answer is none of them, you know. Regularity is going to fix you. So it's a lifestyle change, it's a thought process change, and it's a taste bud change, which does and can happen. Spoiler alert, listeners, I tasted the apple and strawberry kombucha and it wasn't horrible. Hey team, Dr Sandro here. For more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today, make sure you also consult your own doctor. Check out my Twitter feed, at Sandro DeMeo, for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth. And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your mates, tell your mum, it all helps. Thank you to Miranda from Melbourne Farmers Markets for connecting us with loads of terrific storeholders. If you're in Melbourne, check out their website, mfm.com.au, for all the upcoming market dates around town. This episode was produced by me, Dewey Cook, and mixed by Jesse Bear. Thanks for listening.